everyone. This is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. If you hear any yapping sounds in the background, we are fostering eight-week-old puppies right now. Today, my guest is Preston Walker. We have a really great conversation about a lot of different things. A few specific modalities we focus on are neurofeedback and parts and memory therapy. We talk about memory reconsolidation, but Preston had a really eclectic and, and broad scope of knowledge, so I learned a lot from interviewing him and here's his bio at just 14 years old Preston Walker began his journey in the therapeutic field by volunteering at a crisis hotline providing support to peers in need of suicide prevention these experiences inspired him to pursue an education in psychology and a career in marriage and family therapy when accruing hours for licensure Preston had the fortunate experience of having Jay Norix the founder of parts and memory therapy as his primary supervisor he learned from the founder about parts and memory therapy twice a week becoming proficient in utilizing it and he was one of the first clinicians who became certified in the approach, as well as a certified trainer for parts and memory therapy. He's not only authorized to run workshops on parts and memory therapy and to certify therapists in the modality, he's also passionate about the approaches that utilize memory reconsolidation and an advocate for therapists to have training in multiple modalities. He is known in his community for utilizing multiple approaches, including neurofeedback, parts and memory therapy, and emotionally focused therapy. I will include the links that he shared with me below in the podcast description. Uh, in the podcast description, you'll also find my link tree with links to the workshops that I've done, my Patreon where I publish writing. I just published a little webinar about um, couples this week, so I just throw a bunch of different work I do on Patreon, um, and you'll find some other resources in my link tree as well. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. It's been really fun doing this series of interviews, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hi, Preston. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to to interview you. So um, yeah, could you just start with kind of giving a synopsis of the modalities that you like to use? Yeah, so I love love using multiple modalities. Um, I have this framework where I think uh, symptoms can have so many different sources that I really want to find out like where is the origin of this symptom and I find certain modalities work better with you know how different things present so one thing I use is parts and memory therapy that is really good for emotional learning or trauma where there's been this past experience where there's a lot of emotion attached for it So what that does, essentially, it takes the emotions out of the memory and also works with the part of us that kind of holds that memory Mm. and uh, similar to IFS, unburdens that part. So I love that. But then there's also things like ADHD, where that really wouldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So for for something like ADHD, I really love uh, neurofeedback that works with uh, the brainwaves and uh, uses operant conditioning to train the brainwaves to respond. So we can cause the, the neural, neuronal oscillations in the theta range to decrease, which will result in more focus and less distractibility. Um, so I love that approach. I've done it myself. It, uh, it had really good results for me. Um, but I'm also pragmatic. Sometimes someone's not a, a good candidate for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also, I also really love emotionally focused therapy. Um, that is one of the first modalities I was trained in. 
and I love the connection piece. I love the the um, just the the attachment, the working on secure attachment, and even some of the techniques used in that approach can kind of be used in just kind of everyday therapy, even on one on one, as far as like heightening and things like that. So. Yeah, and I've also I've I've used some DBT DBT. Mm -hmm. I haven't done the full trainings, but I've like done like the first half uh, to the point where I could like run groups, but I wouldn't be like a, a DBT therapist. Um, but there are some really cool things there. So I'm a I'm a fan of a few different approaches. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the eclectic blend is always is always really great. Um yeah, when I first was reading um your bio and I saw um is it what well, sorry, what do you call the modality with the kind of parts work and memory work? Parts and memory therapy. This is called parts and memory therapy. Yeah, so I had never heard of that before. So can you can you share a little bit about that? And I mean it sounds similar to IFS, but are there also differences with yeah. IFS? So there's, there's definitely some similarities. Uh, so this was developed by Jay Norix here in Las Vegas. And um, it has more, more of like a memory emphasis. Hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like some people like to blend IFS with EMDR. So parts and memory therapy, we don't really... Uh, say, oh, this person has a firefighter, this person's part is a, a manager. We don't really take that perspective and impose it on the client's inner world. We kind of get the client to tell us what is going on. So it's a bit more collaborative mm. in that sense. And which kind of makes sense from Jane Oric's background is like, but anyway, that would be, that would be me getting sidetracked. Um, so we, we, find this the part of them that's kind of say someone's anxious we'll have them get in tune with that anxiety visualize that part of them that is anxious so now they're imagining the part of them that represents anxiety sometimes it's a picture of them sometimes it's a ball of electricity sometimes it's an imagination so any yeah. really come up but what this does is it then gives us access to memories for example if someone is angry and they've been in a, an argument with their spouse multiple times, they get into that same argument. They have memories easily just like that they can access of all the other times their partner messed up. Mm -hmm. It would be really hard to think of something funny in that moment because that part of them is forward and present. That's the part that has all those memories. So when we have them visualize the part of them that's anxious, we can have them ask that part of them for the earliest bothersome memory. Mm. Typically, we like to start with the earliest and kind of neutralize some of those, and then we'll go to the most later on. Um, so once they give us a memory, we have them imagine walking into the memory. So now they're kind of leaving that part of them, going into the memory, looking at the memory version of themselves and then you know ask if we can help ask if they would like to let go of the emotions using wind water or fire and then visualize that part taking their emotions and having the wind blow it away and we check in have them ask that memory part where's that now on a scale of zero to ten and we kind of repeat this process until it's a zero 
we have them say goodbye, step out of the memory, go back to the part that asked or that they got the memory from, and then ask when you think of that memory, how much does it bother you? A lot of times it's a zero, but sometimes it's not. And so we'll do it a second time. Now, instead of with the memory, we're doing it with a part of them. Hmm. There's some things that are so impactful in our lives, it almost becomes like a part of who we are. So when we neutralize the memory and we neutralize the, the part that holds the memory or the emotions, rather, we're not neutralizing this part, we're neutralizing the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when they can think of the memory and it's a zero out of 10 for them. But what I also really like about this approach is there's protocol of what to do when things get stuck. So someone will visualize, say, for example, someone's visualizing letting go of their emotions, but they're unable to. I might have them look around and tell me if there's anyone there that's not supposed to be there. And they might say, yeah, uh, the perpetrator Mm. is here or uh, my mom is here or there's someone else here. There's sometimes a part of someone's personality that has concerns of what it would mean if we let go of these emotions. Yeah. So does it mean they're going to be vulnerable? Does it mean that they're going to have to trust the person that's not trustworthy, trust the person that hurt them? And so we work with that part, kind of get permission. There's even ways to kind of show, we try to like reassure, no, we're not trying to, you can keep the distrust. We just Mm -hmm. want to let go of the pain. Um, so there's techniques like uh, the two-step technique where we have the memory version of them put the emotions into the box and check in. Do you still remember everything? Yeah. Do you still want to make sure you don't get hurt? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How it feels with the memories being separate or sorry, the emotions being separate. Mm. Are you okay with that? Does that feel better? Are you okay with letting that go? And usually... At that point, yeah, they, that memory part or the, the part that's blocking is okay with that because they can see that it's not getting rid of the memory. It's yeah. not getting rid of uh, the ability or desire to protect themselves. So then we're able to kind of move forward and neutralize it. And this is one of you know several techniques. I'm just using this one as an example. But I, what I love about it is there's, there's protocols of what to do when someone gets stuck. So on a regular basis, um, when someone comes into my office and we do this approach, there's one or more memories and sometimes five, 10, um, depending on, on the therapist and their style, that at the end of the therapy session, it's a zero for them. Um, now, my style of doing this approach is a little bit different than my colleagues. Um, I like to do it quickly. My colleagues mm-hmm. kind of like to take their time, but it's also an approach that you can really have your own style. Um, as long as you kind of go through the protocol and you uh, neutralize the emotions from a memory and then you go to the part and you neutralize the emotions with the part 
then you've accomplished uh, the goal using memory reconsolidation. Um, and I know memory reconsolidation you've, you've talked about in previous uh, podcasts. So just for anyone that's new, what that is, is every time we think of a memory, our neural synapses kind of open up and after about five hours, it's, it reconsolidates. So there's different therapies that use techniques when a memory is activated to disrupt that memory reconsolidation. Um, some studies have shown that like propranolol, they did that where mm. Austin Marathon uh, bombing and that, so they kind of activated a memory. They took that beta blocker, was it a beta blocker? I'm not sure blood pressure medicine. I, I yeah. Think. Yeah. Um, and that had an effect. And then there's like, there's EMDR, there's coherence therapy. And this is, this is another way of, of doing that where you're using visualization. Um, but our memories, every time we think of something, it op- our, mem- our synapses open up and it reconsolidates. So we're actually remembering the last time we remembered it because it's mm. constantly editing. Mm-hmm. So this has huge implications for therapy. If this is already happening, there's a lot of things we can do to change that. So we can change how something feels. So parts and memory therapy is primarily concerned with the implicit memory, with the emotions. Um, we don't change the explicit memory, the episodic memory. We want that to stay the same with this approach. All we care about is letting go of the pain associated with, with the memory. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much. No, that's that's all really, really cool to hear about. And hearing you describe kind of the, the parts in memory therapy, I was like, oh, I'm already doing some of this stuff, you know, because it, it does sound like it has it's like a, a blend of, you know, there's a little EMDR, a little IFS, a little right, coherence right. therapy, a little, um, but especially when you were talking about like having someone visualize their anxiety or kind of, you know, use imagination to like engage with those different feelings and those yeah. different parts of themselves. I love doing that. And um, I think I've mentioned this in, in previous episodes, but as much as I really do like IFS, I think I also have felt sometimes like the firefighter manager, like those labels can be a little bit like, I don't know, restrictive or just like kind of too. So I I like that this sounds almost a little bit more flexible in the way that you use parts work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's like the, the founder Jay Norris is very much like he, he has a a background in anthropology. Mm. We kind of look at anthropology, uh, I could go to a culture and say, oh, this is what's happening. And I'd be wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) because I'm using my own lens to really label and describe things. Um, Whereas like, because of his background, it's, it's more having the patient tell us what's going on, having the patient tell us or having the patient interact with that part and asking that part of them what concerns do you have about letting this go? Asking the patient, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing where it's, it's very much learning from the client. And I think he got that from, his, you know, his background in anthropology, learning from different cultures. Right. Um, like don't interpret, don't assume. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes sense to, to learn from them. Why, why kind of put a label on it when we're probably going to get things wrong. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when you were talking about like the, the protocol for when things get stuck, I always love exploring that. Cause I, I think that comes up so much, especially with trauma work. Um, and you mentioned that sometimes it can be from like a, a kind of self-protective part that's worried. Like if, if I let this go, am I going to lose my, my defense system? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, there's often concerns of it. Does this mean I'm going to be vulnerable? Does this mean I'm going to have to trust this person that I shouldn't be trusting. Um, does this mean that, or even like, does this mean I won't be able to, uh, does this mean I won't have this emotion anymore? Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, sometimes I've seen that. Um, and then even there are even times where there might not necessarily be a blocker, but there might be a previous memory hmm. that was very similar so if I'm working with someone on a memory and it comes down and it gets stuck and we kind of explore and see there's no part of their personality that's blocking this, but we find out, oh, this has happened before, we will then kind of shift, go into that memory, neutralize that, then come back, and then we can continue and neutralize the memory we were originally working on. Um, mm. So that's something that's interesting that, that we see. They kind of get linked through like association because they're similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Have you found um, like, so with, with the memory reconsolidation process, one of the things that I found is that when you get to the point with a client where um, they have had these new disconfirming experiences and it's kind of that turning point where you're like right on the brink of integrating a new belief or kind of like updating the core belief. And sometimes that's where some resistance will come in, or I I don't really like the phrase resistance, but some stuck stuckness or blocks will come in. Um, and sometimes when I explore that with people, I found that it's because Um, like, okay, for example, if I integrate this new belief that I actually am like lovable or that I actually am like worthy of connection as I am, um, that is actually going to bring up a whole lot of other painful emotions because as soon as you're like, oh, you know what? I actually am lovable. Then there's grief of like, but I went all of these years, you know, believing that I wasn't, or I went all of these years, you know, not having my needs met. And now I'm seeing that I actually can't have my needs met. So sometimes I, I've seen that connection where it's like the block almost comes up to avoid an emotional process. That's going to happen. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And there's like, uh, yeah, like you said, like they would have to, um, kind of then face some grief. Yes. What's what's interesting about parts and memory therapies, and there's there's really no emphasis on on insight. Um, little emphasis. There's sometimes emphasis on you know changing a part's role, um, but that's somewhat rare, and it's usually with parts that are they're blocking. Um, but there isn't a lot of a lot of anything to do with with core beliefs, which is mm. kind of interesting. It's really yeah, just yeah. going in, taking out the emotions, going to the part, and taking out the negative emotions. But as a result, like it's almost backwards. As a result, it's like there's new beliefs that come up, or as a result, 
there's then insight and then they look at things from a new lens um but it there's no real emphasis on that it's really just emotion focused of, of neutralizing the emotions and then also working with different parts you know because someone might have like anxiety and depression so we work with the anxiety then we'll go work with the depression um but it's it's different than um than coherence therapy in, in that way and it's really just tailored towards taking out the emotions but it seems that there's a side effect of people then looking at things differently when huh. things are no longer painful oh that's really interesting okay so i definitely want to hear more about that because yeah my my training around memory reconsolidation was, you know, through the coherence therapy lens. And so they talk a lot about schemas and kind of these different like networks of, um, you know, core beliefs that become our constructions of reality. And that's kind of what we're, what we're updating. So can you explain more, like, how does memory reconsolidation work without that emphasis on schemas or, or core beliefs? Right. So the, 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 so for the viewers, so the reconsolidation, it's it's going to be happening whenever something is activated. We're just taking advantage of so once we've activated this memory, we use visualization to edit. Mm. So when the memory reconsolidates, it's going to reconsolidate without those emotions. So it's the visualization process that is used to edit the memory. Um, so as far as like core beliefs, it, yeah, it's, it's separate. Like that's not even a, that's not even like a, a part of it, uh, except if there's a part of us that has core beliefs, we can work with that part to heal past memories and yeah. things like that. But there's, uh, it seems that as a result, just as a result of just taking out the emotions of the memories, um, the core beliefs naturally will change. Uh, mm -hmm but there's real no emphasis for it. And oftentimes, interestingly enough, even just images in someone's head. So let's say someone is visualizing their anxious self, or let's, let's actually go with depressed. So they're visualizing the part of them that doesn't feel good enough. And they visualize a child that's sunken and kind of looking down. Mm -hmm. Go to past the early memories. We neutralize those. We go back to that part and do do it maybe one more time with that part and then i ask the patient out of curiosity does that part look the same and they say no it doesn't like, tell me what what looks different when you think about that part of you that's depressed well they're standing up taller their yeah. head is up yeah. so there's this somewhat symbolic uh, yeah. stuff that happens in the brain of uh, and I think that's the brain's way of showing that healing is taking place. Yeah. Um, but it's more just like, even the therapy doesn't really focus on that change. It's more like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Yeah, I love the um, the visual and symbolic components of like the the parts work that I've done. I always find that really powerful. And I love how everyone's 
everyone's imagination can kind of come up with different things. Like I've had, you know, clients where, yeah, it's, it's a visual of themselves, but kind of like, um, you know, postured in different ways, like the sunken in curled up self or the more like strong, confident self. I've had clients come up with like cartoon characters, movie characters, you know, sometimes it's just like a ball of energy, but just all, all these different like symbolic ways to kind of paint a picture of the internal landscape. Yeah. Yeah. neutralizing oh sorry let me ask just one more question here with neutralizing the memory so when you talk about like neutralizing um is that what you were talking about earlier where you have someone imagine releasing the pain using these different like nature resources yeah and so we have the the patient ask the the memory version of themselves you know on a scale of zero to ten how much does this bother you now and we get it to a zero so we continue the the uh, visualization of letting go of the emotions until it gets to a zero. So we don't stop if it's at a two. So if it's at a seven, we do a visualization and it's at like a five. So we do another one. Mm. So four, do another one, three. So it might be three or four visualizations before it gets to a zero. But once it gets to a zero, it stays at a zero in, in most cases. Um, There's, there's, perhaps some possibility of like, say they leave that session, this memory is still kind of activated that uh, something scary happens to them right after session. You have this new emotion kind of that's being felt while this memory is being reconsolidated. There's a possibility then that a therapist would need to go back and kind of neutralize it a second time. Mm. Um, But uh, outside of scenarios like that, once something is neutralized, it stays there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Okay. Sorry. What were you going to say? I think I interrupted you. <laughs> um, oh, there's, there's some, there's some times where we might, we might work with changing, uh, not necessarily core belief, but maybe changing a role. So let's say, let's say there's a part of someone's personality that is uh, critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and we work with that part. We can like kind of neutralize past memories. We might, uh, we might after that point where we neutralize past memories and we work with that part, we might get it to kind of like adjust the role to kind of be more analytical or something like that. Mm. But, probably most often where we change a role of a part is if they visualize, if there's what we call an introject. So this can be someone we knew in our life and we took the role that they played in our life. And now it's like a part of who we are. Like a critical parent that kind of becomes the inner critic. Oftentimes it's a parent and sometimes it's a a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So it's a critical parent. We do an unmasking where we have them talk with that part and say do you know that you're a part of me because it is this is within their mm-hmm. their head and we have them say we have them tell that part go ahead and take off that mask you've played this role for a long time you've done really well at it but this role is no longer needed we don't need you to play the part of my mom anymore mm-hmm. and so they imagine this this inner child or younger version of themselves taking off this costume and then we get 
we kind of give a new role to that part. Would you like to be a cheerleader? Would you like to remind us of these things? Would you like to remind us that we can do it? And so in this sense, it might be uh, similar to maybe changing a core belief, but instead it's more changing the role of that part of them. Yeah. And it's, it's often a inner child or younger part that's under those masks. Yeah. Uh, it, it could be a younger version of them. It could be just the same age version of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, yeah, it's, it's some, some version of yeah. that has been playing that role. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that idea. That's such a cool, cool exercise. Um, so back to the, the memory reconsolidation stuff for a little bit. So the metaphor that I heard for kind of the way that those neurons like open up and then there's that window before they close back up is kind of like a file saved on your computer and you have to like open the file up and then while it's open, you have the chance to like edit it or, or update it. Right. Yeah. So the updating that you're talking about is, is like editing the emotional content that's like attached to, to it. Is that right? Yeah. And so what I love about this is there's, there's, this can be done in a way where when we activate the memory, I don't have to know what the memory is. So if we're, if I'm working with like shame, so a patient, we're working with their shame, they don't have to tell me what the memory is and they don't have to sit there in the emotion and the memory and describe it in detail and be kind of emotionally flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, them visualizing the memory and them visualizing walking into the memories, how we, how we activate those, those neuronal synapses. Um, mm. And so the, the, the way we activate the memory um, in my, my opinion, it, it can be done in a way where if someone has a, a tendency to be flooded or, or dissociate, we can do this in a way that's less intense and it's tolerable so that, that there's this distress tolerant, tolerance that they're able to do this and able to go through the process. Um, and also the visualization of like letting go of the emotions, that's a, that's a quick, uh, that can be a quick visualization. So I've had times, multiple, where a memory is activated. I can tell just from body language, this memory is intense for the patient. They are about to be emotionally flooded. Um, So I kind of speed up. Okay, imagine talking to that version of yourself. Let's take her out. So we'll do like a rescue. Let's take her out of that scenario to an open field. Let's have her pull, ask her if she's okay if we let go of these emotions, have her pull up all the emotions to her surface imagine wind blowing it away. So I'll walk through it fairly quickly Mm. like that. So as soon as we do that, it's already less. It's all like, Mm. um, now, of course, even before these sessions, we'll go over techniques of what to do, you know, like temporizing techniques, we call them, um, to kind of decrease the intensity of an emotion so that when we do this sort of thing, that if they get flooded, they know what to do. So I might have them, uh, I might have them kind of ask the emotion to step back. That's a technique that we we use. Um, but also, 
kind of my style of doing this is if I can get through one visualization quickly of letting go of the emotions, we can easily do the rest. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's from the experiential side, um, there's not, I think it's tolerable. I think it's very tolerable because there's not a long window. We're not sitting in the intense emotions for half of the session while they're, you know, like a 10 out of 10. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. And that does seem a little different than some other styles too, because I think there are some more experiential therapies that do emphasize really like being slow, kind of like, you know, going through the process slowly. So this right. thing seems uh, different in that regard. Right. So if I, if I have a, if I have a, a session like that, where we go through a, a memory quickly and I can see that it was intense, I'll give them time afterwards, you know, and ask them, what was that like for you? Mm -hmm. um, if they want to like share any, share the memory, share the insights that came up, share their perspective now. Um, but also it's, it has the similar effect to as if someone has done another approach of memory reconsolidation, like EMDR, um, they are going to, they feel like they've just cried. Even if they haven't cried, it's this huh. sensation. Like you feel like you've just cried. Like the release tired. feeling kind of. Yeah. It's like mm. this, this raw, um, raw sensation, of, but also feeling like lighter and unburdened yeah in a way yeah. so with some of my patients I, I probably shouldn't say this but I, this is what works for me I tell them after your first session of doing this approach because the first time it's going to it might be hard mm -hmm. um go get a milkshake mm -hmm. <laughs> go get a milkshake afterward get some I think that's good food. advice right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um that is so that is so cool so with shame, like you brought up the example of shame, let's say someone is, is, you know, kind of just saying that they feel really like heavy shame just come up a lot. Mm -hmm. It would be that same process with the shame that you're describing, where maybe you have them visualize the shame, interact with the shame, try to see what memories are linked with the shame. Yeah. And, and from just my, my experience anecdotally, I don't know if this is universal, um, Sometimes it's hard to get them to visualize the shame. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that shame does like doesn't want to like the whole point of shame is kind of reclusive. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes that first step of getting them to visualize it, it, it can take a little bit longer. Um, but yeah, it's the same process. We get them to visualize that part of them. Um, so they might visualize like a tar monster or something mm -hmm. like that. And that's still representative of that part of them. We have them interact with that part of them. Um, ask, you know, let same process. Um, let it know we want to help. Get permission. Go or ask for early memories. Go into those memories. Neutralize it. Come back. Check. See if when it thinks of those memories, if it's at a zero. If it is, great. We're done. Um, and we. What's also nice is for future sessions, we have a visual to come back to. So if, you know, we work with shame and then we kind of take a break, there's other things and we come back, say it's like five weeks later, 
okay, can you can you think of that that tar monster that represented shame and we have a way to connect with that emotion. Mm-hmm. And then we have a way to connect with those memories of shame. Yeah. So those times where someone, so like in my therapy, the therapy I do, not every session is parts and memory session. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely, there are some sessions where, you know, part of the session is that, um, or whole, the whole of the session is that, um, so there's times where, yeah, it, we may come back and uh, we can kind of get them to reconnect. So if someone comes in and they're like, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing really good. I don't, I don't have anything to talk to you about this week. Great. We, I have in my notes, our overall goal is to continue working with that shame. Can you visualize that tar monster? Mm. And we can, we can get there very quickly. Um, and sometimes I've, I feel a little bit bad because they come in, they're happy. And two minutes later they're crying. And then a few minutes after that, they're relieved. But like, you see that when you get to, to visualize walking into a memory two minutes later, like two minutes before this, they could be happy and cheerful. But when they visualize walking into that memory, just all that emotion can come forward. Um, But then also it's nice because when, when we do this with the past memories and, and why these, these approaches that work with memory reconsolidation is so important is because it undoes emotional learning yes. and it removes triggers. Mm-hmm. So this is important with like attachment wounds because we can have that triggered in our relationships all the time. Um, and things are being triggered like on an implicit level a lot more than we realize so much more and people are like yeah but i'm not thinking of these past memories well yeah you're not thinking about it but you're feeling it. right your body and your emotions are, are reacting right mm-hmm. um but let's say say someone comes in and they say i have a fear of public speaking okay so we connect to that we go back to an early memory and you know what the earliest memory they have is just like a a subjective unit of distress or a sub score of three out of 10, I would think, okay, uh, that's low. This isn't the right approach. Let's mm. maybe like do some CBT. Have you done public speaking before? No, I haven't. Okay. So this isn't unlearning we need to do. We need to do learning. So oh, instead interesting. Of, instead of memory reconsolidation for, uh, desensitization we're going to use extinction for desensitization let's build a new skill using cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that um so there's kind of how i i view it is if there's like if something was emotionally learned yeah parts and memory therapy works really well if something was not learned and has yet to be learned well then another approach might be better I love that. That's such a, so I I wrote down as you're talking, top down is for learning, bottom up is for unlearning. So what I would say is bottom up therapies um, are not always unlearning. When dealing with the past um, and memory reconsolidation, I consider that unlearning. So memory reconsolidation, I liken to unlearning Whereas like CBT, DBT, all of those are top down. I liken those to learning, but 
there are bottom-up therapies where you still learn. So there's still extinction. It's still going that route. Emotionally focused therapy is an example where you try to feel connected with your partner. Um, you have enactments in therapy. You are vulnerable and you learn that it's safe and you learn that your partner is there for you. So that's an example of a bottom-up approach that is still using extinction. So there's, yeah, hope that clarifies that. So cool. I, you know, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. So you, if, you know, in that example, you get back to the memory and it's pretty low on the distress scale, you can kind of assume like, okay, this is, there's not a memory that's at the root of this anxiety or whatever it is. It could just be more of like a a lack of skills, lack of experience, fear of the unknown, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so like if we go to the most intense and their most intense emotion or memories at three, yeah, that's, I would shift. I would be like, this isn't the right, um, this isn't the right modality for this. Yeah. Let's shift over. And, and I say this because I really recognize that symptoms can come from so many different places. Yes. Uh, Like, Anxiety is such a blanket statement, right? <laughs> like, so, uh, I knew someone uh, who had anxiety for 12 years. He went to therapy for 12 years. Uh, he was put on a B vitamin, a liquid B vitamin and an iron supplement when he was diagnosed with anemia and his anxiety went away. So <laughs> right, right. For him, like this racing heart, it was a physiological like a biological thing. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So we can have like, and that's something that I, I, um, I try to look out for is just where is the symptom coming from? And that's the first step in, uh, in parts and memory therapies, defining the problem. Yeah. But, you know, when we define the problem, okay. And we find it's, it's source is likely something that really guides the treatment modality that we use. Um, and even, even like, uh, even with modalities like neurofeedback, if we're looking at Uh, an EEG and someone says, I have anxiety. Okay. That could be like a a low alpha wave in the parietal lobe, which would be associated Mm. with inability to feel calm or, or it could be an excessive high beta wave in the front uh, frontal right. And Mm. that could be associated with racing thoughts or, or it could be a sensory motor cortex and be like a sensory overload. Or <laughs> it could be mm-hmm. just on the top of the cortex and be like uh, muscle tension and a fight or flight response. So even with a modality like neurofeedback, when we're looking at someone's brain waves and the EEG, uh, anxiety would still kind of be a blanket statement because it can pop up in different areas of the brain. Uh, and that's one reason when, why, like when people do that modality of neurofeedback, and I'm a really strong advocate for doing a QEEG instead of just, oh, you have anxiety, let's do this protocol. Because mm-hmm. you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where the source of the issue is. You don't know where the source of the problem is. What's and a QEEG? So a QEEG is like, it, it's an EEG uh, with statistics. Basically, we take mm-hmm. an EEG and we send it into a database and we can see how far outside the norm uh, different brain waves are. So the amplitude, their connectivity or communication between the different parts. Um, 
And I use that to guide treatment with neurofeedback and to even see if someone is a good candidate for neurofeedback. Mm. Um, so I'm sorry, this is kind of like a stark transition from one mode. Yeah, no, I, I want to hear about it though. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's an example of like where knowing the source of the issue is important. So if someone comes in and they tell me, or they say they come in for a consultation, they want to do neurofeedback. And they say, yeah, my anxiety started at age 15. I would immediately think, oh, your anxiety has an onset. What happened with this onset? Okay, there was a trauma. You know what? I think like something like parts and memory therapy or EMDR or coherence therapy, um, but also vice versa. If someone comes in, they're like, I've done all these approaches and nothing's worked. And I've had this anxiety my entire life. I would think. I wonder if this is related to your brain waves because yeah. talk therapy is not going to change your brain waves. Right. Um, and if that's your homeostasis, the neurofeedback can change that. But the biggest thing that really lets me know in a consultation is the onset. If there's no onset, then getting a QEEG to see if you're a good candidate for neurofeedback for anxiety or ADHD um, can be really helpful. Mm. Um, but there's also been times where I get a, a QEEG back and I tell people, you're not a good candidate for neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is not going to help. Um, look at other things, you know, maybe get some blood work done, but this isn't the source. This mm -hmm. isn't the source of your symptom. Yeah. And that's, that's so important to me is finding that source because it could be someone, it could be arousal state from our neurons. It could be a trauma. Mm -hmm. it, it could be systemic. It could be what's going on at home. Mm -hmm. So we have all these different things, or it could even be biological. Right, right. It could be, oh, this person has anemia or what I see often sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Well, of course you, you feel depressed. You have sleep apnea. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that's going to affect everything, your low blood oxygen level, you're going to feel lack of motivation. And there's definitely been times where like, oh yeah, I did the stop bang with someone. We found out that there's, that's a quick screening. Yeah. And I, it, there's a high chance for sleep apnea. They go in, they get a sleep study, they, they get a, a machine and then they're motivated. Now mm -hmm. therapy would not help. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like what you're saying is so important because I think that's a big problem in the, the medical field or the, the mental health field in general, which is that people kind of assume what the cause of something is based on like our biases of what our field is. Right. So like right. a trauma therapist is going to assume that there's some kind of trauma underneath right. it. And, you know, a CBT person is going to assume there's some kind of cognitive distortion. And it's like, we, we really shouldn't be making any assumptions about where things come from until we actually do a discovery process. Yeah. It's one thing that drives me nuts is if I'm on like Reddit or Facebook and someone's like, Hey, um, what are some interventions for anxiety? <laughs> because like what interventions you use to, like, it's dependent on where that anxiety is coming yeah, from. Yeah, Totally. No, that makes so much sense. And I, I feel like that's probably really refreshing for patients to, to have that actual open-minded, you know, let's try to figure out what the root is instead of just Right. assuming and, and kind of treating it based on that assumption. So yeah. And there's, there's so many, so many things like 
you know, uh, someone gets on birth control um, and like that, that can really have an effect on people. Yeah, uh, hormonal stuff. Yeah. Uh, there's some people that have severe reactions, even like things like psychosis. Um, and I think that's also something that people aren't, maybe it's, you know, just like not discussed as much as maybe it should be, but they're not aware of like, oh, this can have this sort of side effect. Um, so like someone's like in a relationship, they get on birth control right before they get married and then they're like miserable and then they get off birth control and then they're super happy. Like there's, there's things like that, that can, that can play out where it's seemingly like if you're trying, if your therapist trying to find like, wait, things were going well. Okay. And then things weren't going well, but you're trying to find the source of the, like why this depression started, you can definitely go down like roads that are, are misleading. You can say, okay, so you got married and then, and then, and then you started fighting. So, you know, they kind of try to explore that, but it could be something as simple as a new medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So with the kind of neurofeedback stuff that you were talking about, like, let's say that you had a patient come in who's, who's kind of experiencing multiple things. Like they, they have ADHD, they're experiencing a lot of executive dysfunction, um, but also they have a lot of trauma and they're experiencing a lot of, you know, emotional, emotional learning based difficulties. Is there a protocol for the starting point? Like, is it better to to do the neurofeedback and then the emotion, the memory and parts work or both um, at the same time. You can do treatment alongside each other, but what you don't want to do is have like a parts and memory therapy session and then a neurofeedback session right after. Mm. Um, and this is the same with other treatment modalities that are using memory reconsolidation. You wouldn't want to do EMDR and then do neurofeedback right after because mm. What these modalities will do is will cause a spike in delta waves. And that's like, if you're like, you activated a memory, you're reconsolidating, like your brainwaves will be different in that moment. Um, Generally like brainwaves won't change over time, but this, like that type of therapy will. So neurofeedback, uh, you would want it spaced out and like done on a different day or even like done prior. Um, you can do them side by side in the sense that, you know, maybe someone comes in uh, one day, they do neurofeedback, a couple of days later, they do therapy, or uh, parts and memory therapy. Um, at one clinic I was working at, uh, that was the case where people were coming in uh, and doing both. And I noticed people were kind of getting through therapy. Um, fast or faster there was like the this clinic was uh was kind of working with um the medicaid population so uh there was a lot of trauma a lot of uh executive dysfunction or just more than average than like a when i say average i mean more than like a commercial based uh, insurance but uh, even there i saw like okay this people's symptoms are really kind of going away quickly. Um, so when there's, when there's multiple things like ADHD and, and PTSD, you can, like, you can be 
a candidate for neurofeedback and you can do uh, hearts and memory therapy or EMDR. Um, and there's, there's some instances though, where, and I think from a parts perspective, this kind of makes sense with neurofeedback, there's this type of training that has been traditionally done called alpha theta training or the Penniston protocol. Hmm. Um, and for some people who have PTSD, there's this type of ab reaction that happens where it, it is scary. So you're helping this person getting into a relaxed state, but this person has PTSD and it feels like their guard is being dropped. And suddenly yes. there's a part of them that's like, no, you need yeah. to be safe, watch out. And so they panic. Um, we see this also with like, you know, dissociative disorders and like mindfulness meditation. I, I've seen mindfulness meditation cause dissociation. So there's yes. this type of relaxation induced anxiety that can occur. Um, what's really helpful for that in neurofeedback. So we know we Penniston protocol wouldn't help, but Bessel van der Kolk took the Othmer's protocol and he, he's the guy that wrote the body keep score. Mm -hmm. And he did a study um, and this other protocol worked really well for those patients who had this sort of relaxation induced anxiety. So that protocol seems to kind of teach the brain to get into a calm state without feeling like their guard is being dropped. So that protocol I've seen work really well. Um, so although I, I have this, this kind of bias for like parts and memory therapy, um, there's like, that would be like my choice for PTSD or CPTSD. Um, I've also seen these situations where that protocol worked really, really well. It was somewhat life-changing yeah. for people. Um, so there are, there are times even with PTSD that neurofeedback can help. Hmm. Yeah, that is so interesting. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's definitely something I see a lot with um, complex trauma is that, you know, being hypervigilant and being in a state of arousal feels so protective that as soon as you try to do any like grounding or regulation, it actually is like super dysregulating and, and activating um, that protocol. Is it kind of like a more somatic approach or what, I, what can you share about how we can make relaxation not feel dangerous. So um, that that neurofeedback protocol is really is, is training just different parts of the brain than than were previously being used while well, the Othmers were using it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's real it's still using operant conditioning to change the brain waves. So if someone's sitting down, they have a, some electrodes on their head, they're watching a show. The screen gets bright when the brain waves we want to change change. So mm -hmm. There's kind of this, you know, maybe 10 to 13 Hertz or alpha two range that comes up at uh, the part of their head. When that comes up, we call, the screen gets bright. And so what happens is because we can observe brain waves, we can then like program a computer. When this thing happens, give the person a reward. So they're sitting there watching a show and 
over the course of half an hour, they're given 5,000 rewards and these brainwaves start changing in order to keep the show bright. Mm. So it's, it's, mm. it's just operant conditioning, but for the neuronal oscillations. So we, we do this with behaviors. We do this with, with dogs. They do something, we give it a treat. They do it again. We give them a treat. We can train right. a dog to do things. It's amazing to me that we can train neurons, mm -hmm. neuronal oscillations to do that. Um, so that that's what's happening. And so sometimes some uh, types of neurofeedback, they might have their eyes closed. Um, but instead of like a screen, there's like a reward sound that they hear. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes uh, there's visuals that can be incorporated with it. So um, one person could be playing a game and, the, and their car is going faster when the brainwaves do what we want or someone else it's, it, there's, they can incorporate like a photo biomodulation. So there's, there's different rewards that can be used, but the ultimate goal is essentially to change certain brainwaves in certain areas of the brain. Um, and so like using the 1020 system, it's like P4 and T4, um are the the areas that are being used for most people that hear this they, they don't know what that is but <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what that is <laughs> that, that's that's the so like training the say theta down alpha two up and high beta down at those locations and doing a bipolar montage uh that is the venerical protocol mm -hmm. um and that that can be really helpful for those situations that being said, I've also had patients where, um, let's say they, they do the traditional type of neurofeedback and they don't respond well, if I would need to go look at their QEEG and see if it's okay to do that protocol. Because if there's too much alpha waves already in that location, it would be counterproductive. I wouldn't want to train it up. That would be, that would be mm. bad. I might, I might increase symptoms. So the QEEG is really important to guide tr treatment and to make sure some of these standardized protocols, um, even if someone's planning on doing a standardized protocol, like you want it, you want that QEG first to make sure that it's still okay and still a good idea. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, talking to you has convinced me of, of two things. One is I definitely want to get trained in, in the parts and memory awesome. modality because that sounds right up my alley. And then two is that I think I should try neurofeedback as the patient <laughs> for my ADHD. <laughs> so I'm going to be looking into both of those for different awesome. reasons after this. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise. Um, with the time that we have left, is there anything that you haven't talked about that you'd like to share? Like anything else about this work that you just find interesting, oh, important? There's this it's there's just so much there's yeah. so much to learn there's so much to learn it's it's really fascinating subsets of the of our field you can get phds in subsets of our field oh, yeah so if we take something like biofeedback you know like reducing muscle tension or eeg biofeedback um i would say that's like a subset of our field um but yeah, you can get a PhD in, in like applied psychophysiology from like Saybrook University. There's, it's, it's overwhelming yeah. how much there is to learn. Uh, so I would encourage uh, anyone who's not getting 
like progress in their therapy um, to just to explore, to explore different modalities, different therapists. And I would encourage therapists um, to kind of expand their knowledge, not necessarily for something like biofeedback, but I'm an advocate that every therapist should have one training in uh, like a behavioral model like DBT or CBT. Um, so have some expertise in that. And then some uh, trainings in uh, a therapy that utilizes memory reconsolidation, EMDR coherence therapy, parts and memory therapy. Uh, and then one therapy that utilizes uh, like secure attachments, like attachment family, attachment focused family therapy or emotionally focused therapy. And these are all modalities that are strikingly different. Yeah. Um, but also when you look at something like something severe, like evidence-based approaches for suicide, you have, you have like EMDR, you have CBT, you have attachment focused family therapy, you have these approaches that are drastically different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as a therapist having this, like, and I'm not saying like eclectic, I know there's this strong aversion to that word. I'm saying a specializing specializing in three things specializing in three things that are drastically different like if we compare this to ufc fighting if someone was like a wrestler and then they learn brazilian jiu-jitsu yeah they're going to do really well they're going to be like a master in brazilian mm -hmm. jiu-jitsu but in a ufc fight uh they need to know how to fight on the ground or not just the ground that the, the like standing up, they need yeah, to yeah, yeah. know how to block. They need to know how to throw punches. Otherwise they're not gonna do well. So if we compare like being a therapist to something strikingly different, a UFC fighter, having specialties in multiple things will absolutely help. You'll know when to do what. So you'll know when CBT is appropriate. Mm -hmm. You'll know when parts and memory therapy is appropriate. You know when family therapy is appropriate. Um, so I'm a strong advocate for getting multiple specializations because if it's just one, yeah, you might be, you might be really good at that niche thing. Right. Right. But what about all the other times where that doesn't fit? Yeah. So someone goes to see an EMDR therapist, they have ADHD. It won't do anything. Like <laughs> Right. Right. <laughs> Ritalin will help more than EMDR at emotion regulation. Like, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah. That, that's something I would say is for therapists out there to get, get those trainings, um, push yourself to get those trainings. And I don't think anyone will regret it. Um, and I definitely think uh, patients won't, uh, patients will be better served yep. because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I realized we didn't even get to talk about emotion focused therapy. So I might need to have you on for a, a part two at some point. Um, if you're open to that, cause yeah, there really is like so much good stuff to talk about here. It, yes. it is kind of overwhelming. And with these interviews I've been doing, like, you know, because I wanted to do this series, just interviewing therapists about 
bottom-up experiential therapy. And I was worried that things would start to get redundant because it's like, oh, are we going to just, you know, kind of have people saying the same thing? But no, every episode I've done, every interview, you know, there's there's been something so unique about each modality, how each therapist applies each modality. So that's what I think is so exciting about this is that even though there's these like core principles, the way the ways we can like apply those core principles, there's so much diversity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I also, I, um, I also am a parts of memory therapy trainer. So any therapist hearing this, there's going to be a link shared and you can sign up for a training. Um, oh yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll share all your links in the podcast description. And then are you taking new clients as well for the, for the clients listening? Um, I'm really close to, I have like space for like one or two more, um, for therapy. For the neurofeedback, um, we are taking neurofeedback patients, but um, I'll still like, we'll do a QEG, go over the results, see if they're a good candidate. And if they are, I, I can program the computer and I have, or the equipment, and I have a technician that is certified that uh, kind of helps them through that. So they can do the neurofeedback while I'm say in the other room doing therapy. Um, so we are taking neurofeedback patients. We have room for that, but for therapy, um, I will probably have uh, a wait list within like the next week. Okay. Okay. So if you're listening to this, it might be your last, last chance, last slot open to work with Preston. Um, and what, what are the trainings like? Is that like a, a long-term training or like a shorter term training? So, or for the, the neurofeedback? Oh, I'm sorry for the parts and memory oh. therapy. You said you were so, a trainer for that. Yeah. So those, so we have a part one and a part two. Um, so usually it's a day. Sometimes we do it in a day and a half. So it might be like, you know, eight hours uh, Saturday and maybe uh, when we do it a day and a half, then like nine to 12 on Sunday. Um, so the first part of the training is kind of going over like memory reconsolidation, how it works, forerunners, the parts perspective, the history of uh, parts. Um, and then the, the, we'll have demonstrations throughout. So you can, you can see this happening. Um, and then we, we go over like the, the protocols and we have people practice. We have people practice on each other, break them up into small groups. And oftentimes what happens is you, people will come in they'll be a little bit critical, like, oh, this sounds, this sounds a little bit weird. And then they'll experience it. And, and then they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. This, this is awesome. Mm. <laughs> they, they go through that experience. And so we encourage the therapists uh, to volunteer. Um, but we also have them do a, a, a dissociative experience scale first. And if they score, you know, say above a 20, on that, we ask them not to volunteer in that workshop. Mm. And if they wanted to experience it, can then to see a, a parts and memory certified therapist. Um, because we don't want a situation where someone is, is learning how to do this approach and the other person starts to dissociate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we, yeah. Um, but if that score isn't high, then we do encourage uh, people to participate and see what it's like. So there's one training uh, level one, and then there's a, a level two training. 
Um, and I, I encourage people, even if they've done level one and level two, um, there's also consultations, consultation groups that I do, that Patrick does, Patrick Toby, um, where people bring in cases and they say, okay, so this is kind of like what you would do with a supervisor. This is what's going on. Or I ran into this problem, or let's say I have a patient with uh, this addiction. So it's also, I didn't talk about this. What's nice about uh, hearts and memory therapy is it doesn't just work for like negative emotions. We don't mm. use a subscore. We use a suscore subjective unit of experience. So if we go back to a memory and someone's super depressed, we neutralize that, but it's also the first time they used a drug. Then we go to those positive feelings about using that drug and we neutralize that. And that, kind mm -hmm. of, it helps uh, so that their very first memory of using a drug is no longer like a chase memory. They aren't oh, interesting. That, that, that high because it's that memory is like bland. Now it's neutral. Mm -hmm. um, also, very helpful in uh, in uh, memories that involve uh, SA. So when all those experiences are let go, um, whether it's you know just the negative, and then you have like this other experience you wish you didn't have, right? And let that go as well. Huh. Wow, that is so cool. That that makes a lot of sense with the addiction stuff because those first memories of of using a drug can be so like potent and you know right. char like charged with emotion and sensation. So I had never never thought about this before. That is so cool. Well, I feel like we could keep going for another two hours here, but <laughs> I gotta cut it off. Um, but thank you so so much for taking the time to come share your expertise. I learned a lot. I really really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Okay, and I will have all Preston's links in the podcast description for people that want to get in touch with him. All right, thanks, Preston. Thank you.